Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. Well, we're happy to have Elena Hutchinson on the show today. Kind of undercover topic generally in software and the technology industry, it's analyst relations that play a massively important role. But when you look at you know blog content, social media, podcasts, there's very little. And I was excited to cross paths with her um, through our own analyst work and get her on the show uh, to discuss her experience at Medallia, which was a leading SaaS company, and then her work now um, starting an analyst relations consultancy uh, named Upright. So here we have Elena. Elena, how about you tell our guests uh, and audience more about yourself? Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. Uh, so my name is Elena Hutchison. I uh, left a company called Medallia, which specialized in customer experience management after a an amazing 10-year run in February. And since then, I've been working with companies, uh, kind of helping them manage their, um, their Forrester and Gartner footprint. Uh, before I started at Medallia back in 2012, I was a customer success manager, so I've been client-facing most of my career. And at Medallia, I was one of the first sales engineers. So I was hired um, kind of right after we took our Series B to give demos, sell some of our, our big customers. And at some point along the way, uh, we were getting into a Forrester wave, which had been pretty prominent in Medallia's rise and in the investment. And I think everybody looked around and said, who can do this? And um, ultimately decided that a sales engineer was a really great choice. And we could talk a little bit later about, about why that is and all the similarities. But for me, that gave me a chance to really take on a, a hugely important strategic project and to kind of put me at the center of the company's strategy and got me a seat at the table. So I ended up, after I took on analyst relations, ended up running product marketing and eventually ended up as the, uh, the chief strategy officer for the company. So super cool run. Um, I love talking about this stuff. I think you're so right. It is a very niche thing. Not a lot of companies care about this, although I think a lot of founders that I talk about, smaller companies are aspiring to be in this place, right? At least people who sell to enterprise, like being in a Forrester Wave or a Gartner Magic Quadrant and being the leader in one of those things is is the holy grail. But it takes a long time to be in a market and to be in a position that, that gets to there. So I'm helping companies kind of move in that direction. And then the companies that are in more mature markets, I'm helping them uh, make the most of how they show up in those moments. Very good. Very good. And I think before we get so far deep into this, I think my perception has been people understand some aspects of analyst relations. Like everyone knows Magic Quadrants. Everyone knows the Forrester wave, but then below that, there's some misconceptions or lack of understanding on how these firms actually work. How do they interface with clients? How do they interface with vendors? Like what is there beyond these quadrants? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And I, uh, I found myself explaining now that I have this consultancy, I had to explain to my mother-in-law what analyst relations is. And the way I explained it was, I think this is relatable for her. Um, it's like consumer reports, right? When you, I don't, I think people still do this. You know, if you're buying a car or an appliance, you're making major purchases. You want to de-risk that by having a third party kind of dispassionately look at the space and say, this one's a good choice. This one's a bad choice. Here's the reliability. And firms like Gartner and Forrester and other firms too, um, they serve the, the B2B technology market in that way. So particularly for enterprises, when they're making uh, technology purchases that are going to be at the core of their business, they're going to be big expenditures. Forrester, Gartner, the others help them de-risk those, uh, you know, the, those purchases. And that's when it comes to technology vendors. Um, these analyst firms are also talking a lot about trends. So I'm sure a ton of ink is, I know a ton of ink is getting spilled right now around AI and, and generative AI and how to build that into your business. 
So these firms really work with senior leadership of these companies to help them stay ahead of trends, understand what other companies in the space are doing, um, and really sort of de-risk their businesses. They have a seat at the table. They have a lot of influence. Um, companies listen to them. And, um, you know, so if you can start to get them singing from your song sheet, there's a lot of power in that. And they work, again, like in the service of enterprise technology buyers. Yeah. So, so those buyers, I mean, typically any large enterprise that you are selling to, which is what I spent most of my career doing, they will have seat licenses to consume research from these companies. And the, um, it can be just written research about trends and waves and magic quadrants kind of fit into that, uh, that category as well. They can also um, do inquiries with, with analysts. So if they're working on an RFP, for example, and they want to talk to an analyst in the space about, um, you know, what, what should I ask? What are the big differentiators? Who can I beat up on price and how, like, what are you seeing? These analysts actually often will be riding along in an RFP process. And so they have a front row seat to all of the vendors pricing, what we put forward, and they can advise their, the companies that they're working with on who might be an appropriate fit for their particular needs. And then given the cost of subscribing to Gartner or Forrester, right, it kind of implies a very large technology buyer base. Yeah, I mean, t that's certainly the case, right? Gartner and Forrester, uh, especially, they're definitely catering toward the enterprise end of the market, right? These are not like they're they're not typically covering product led smaller purchase buy it with a credit card types of things although you know we're certainly seeing the lines between those things blur and so it's starting to get really interesting when you think about what does what does a customer's buying cycle look like if customers are doing more and more of that research themselves um you know how do the analyst firms fit in in the same way i think it's going to be an interesting question as it evolves but certainly at an enterprise if you're talking about any kind of a regulated industry manufacturing financial services all of these organizations that have a lot of risk inherent in the the technologies that they're buying they're going to be forrester and gartner clients they're going to be relying quite a bit on their point of view all right and the, this might be a question you don't like would, <laughs> would be how accurate are these quadrants like in terms of accurately reflecting like the best software in a particular product category? Yeah, I. it's a provocative question. It's an interesting question. I think directionally, they do a pretty good job. By and large, when someone emerges as a leader in a wave or a magic quadrant, they probably are an actual market leader, in my experience. And part of the reason for that, um, and the analysts do a good job, right? They, their influence is, you know, a bad analyst who is not reflecting the market well is not going to have, it's not going to be able to, they, they get... The, the firms look at how many people are asking them questions, how many people are reading their research. So if they're not putting out things that are of high quality, they start to lose their market share. They have every incentive to get it right. But they also build into evaluations criteria around who's asking me about this vendor in the market. So what that means is, um, you know, to get into a wave, to get into a magic quadrant, you have to be a vendor of note who people are asking them about. And so you've got this kind of natural check on who gets included and how they get covered coming from the market itself, which you know helps make sure that they are accurate. Now, I do believe, and this is sort of the, the thesis at the heart of, of my consulting firm, how you show up to those moments matters. And so waves and magic quadrants are not entirely evaluations of just your product. They, just like a buyer in a sales cycle, are thinking about and watching how do you show up? How coherent is your story? How professional is your team? Do your executives seem like they've got a good strategy and they're with it and they're thoughtful? And so 
just like in a sales cycle, how the sales team shows up and how they present and, and how they, you know, just the professionalism and the way that they approach that process matters in the decision. I think that's true of analyst firms too. We're all humans. And so building relationships and shaping an analyst perspective can absolutely wiggle your placement. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's an important thing that, that firms, especially as they get larger and they start to engage with, with Gartner, Forrester and others have to have in the front forefront of their minds. If they don't, their competitors will. Interesting. Like when I think about that, I think this transitions well to like some of the content you've written, right? And instead of me trying to paraphrase about, you know, this is like an enterprise sales cycle, you've had a few posts in the last uh, couple months that I think, you know, giving the highlights of would be helpful for people to to hear and then go read, which we'll put in the show notes. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so I, I think I, I alluded to this at the beginning, but the way I ended up sort of falling into analyst relations, which I don't, I don't think anybody goes to college and thinks I'm going to do analyst relations someday. Like everybody falls into this. My story is that I was an enterprise sales engineer. And so I was working with clients. I was doing all of the pieces of a sales cycle, an RFP, the big demo. It turns out that when you're in a waiver magic quadrant, it's very, very similar to that, right? There is a process before the process kicks off where you can influence criteria. We do that in sales cycles too, right? We go to our prospects and we try to help them understand the things that matter and the things that don't. Uh, and having that skill set of discovery and sharing what's going on in the market and storytelling it's all also relevant to analyst relations. Then a wave or an MQ kicks off, you get a big RFP. <laughs> you respond to that RFP. Uh, then there's a big dog and pony show briefing where um, Forrester and Gartner do this in very different ways, but you've got executives sharing, you know, what's the story of this company. You do a product demonstration, their customer references involved. It's very much like how we go through a sales cycle. Um, and so, you know, I talk a lot about a wave or an MQ being the most important sales cycle of the year, right? Because this is not just any sales cycle. It's not just, you know, one customer. If you think about how companies use waves and magic quadrants and, and the equivalent, it's everywhere, right? It's in everybody's email signature. It's in every RFP you send out. It's in everybody's LinkedIn profile. It's on the front of your website. And so it's a make or break moment that... I argue you should be treating like the most important thing you do all year from a sales perspective. And that means bring in your best sales engineer. That person has great context on what buyers want. They have great storytelling. They are pros at handling a demo and hitting their time and all of those kinds of things. Train your executives, right? Sometimes um, now I'm working with clients, sometimes getting executive teams to understand that we're only going to have a certain amount of time with a magic quadrant. You literally have an hour long video and you've got to just put everything you know about yourselves into that hour long video, you got to nail the timing. And so coaching executives through that process so that they know that they've got to hit the time because you're going to get cut off and not get the points. I mean, all of those things about how you really show up and make the most of that moment are really critical. And those are the little, you know, kind of details at the edge that in my opinion can really make, not, not make or break, right? They're not going to, they shouldn't turn, turn you from a leader into a challenger, but could you move across a line from a strong performer to a to a leader status because you've done a couple of things right, because you've been smart strategically? I believe you can. And so, you know, when I work with my clients and when I did this at Medallia, we treated these moments like they were just absolutely the make or break thing we were going to do that year. That's interesting. And, you know, you would think this is one of those things, though, that like everyone wants to be, you know, in the leader quadrant. Everyone is going to treat it like the most important enterprise cycle of the year. Like what are reasons people don't? Are they just deprioritize it relative to revenue opportunities? I think 
people don't appreciate, yeah, I think it's easy to deprioritize it relative to revenue, right? Part of the challenge with these evaluations is they happen really fast. So if you're not ahead of them, suddenly a, you know, it's basically like getting a blind RFP, right? Suddenly you are invited into this cycle. You've got this sometimes gigantic questionnaire to respond to in three or four weeks. It needs data from someone in finance and someone in product talking to each other to do some math about how many people in LATAM are using this feature, right? It's very, there's just a lot to it. And so unless you are ready to move a lot of mountains and with the right executive sponsorship to get everybody on the same page, that this is really a strategic event where we want to show up and tell our story in a very cohesive and data-backed way. If you're not ready to do that, it's very hard to spin up those resources in a short period of time. And so sometimes what I see is it's like handed to PR or handed to, you know, product marketing will sort of do it. They get the questionnaire and they answer the questions. They ask the one in product, how do I answer this question about the product? Does it do X or does it do Y or, you know, or does it not? If you ask a sales engineer, they might, there's nuance to that question, right? There's gray areas. Can our product integrate with X? Yes. Well, not out of the box maybe, but with a very simple integration that we can build in a few hours? Like the answer is yes. So do you answer that yes or do you answer that no, right? There's there's selling nuance in there that I think a lot of companies sometimes miss. That's interesting. And here's a, another question you might not like. Should you always participate in the RFP or RFI, request for information? Yeah. This is a great question. Uh, I was just, we were just talking about this a little bit on my LinkedIn because um, I'm seeing a trend of more and more vendors not participating, getting getting the gray dot, um, as the case may be. If you don't participate, a couple of things can happen. Sometimes you can get with that analyst and explain, look, like the way you've defined this market, we don't really fit in it. Here's our evidence for that. You know, we go to market in a different way. Our website backs that up, whatever. Um, and you can get out. Fully out is a great place to be if you don't want to be in a wave. Forrester and Gartner will often say, like, it's always good to be covered. I don't agree with that. I think if you're covered poorly in a market that you're supposed to be in, competitors can use that against you and you don't want to be in that position. So when you opt out, when you choose to opt out, what you're saying to Forrester or Gartner is you have the right to cover us based on publicly available data and nothing we give you. You lose the right to fight your scores. You lose the right to kind of provide additional information, provide references, provide data that can help you. And I'm not sure what you gain because they can choose to cover you anyway. And that's a really bad place to be. So I, you know, I, I think it's a complex question. If you if you're finding yourself like being dragged into a wave or a magic quadrant that you don't necessarily want to be in, that is a please call me. I can I can help you try to think about, you know, criteria and help help think about ways that you could you could box yourself out. I don't think it's always great. And I, you know, I think Forrester and Gartner often um will spin it as though it's always great. I don't, as a seller, I don't want collateral that's negative out there in the market. And so I would, I would try to get myself out of a situation like that if I could, rather than getting the, I think the gray dot just sort of, you're leaving a lot to chance that way. Interesting. And to give people a sense of like how truly like personal relationship driven this is. And I could see if you're a Forrester Gartner, you have an RFI that someone doesn't participate in or has you know, kind of adverse feedback about how you've set up a category. Should that message come from like a founder CEO that you're not participating or just analyst relations, product marketing, like how kind of personality driven are situations love, like this? I love that you're thinking about it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think 
it is relationship driven, right? And, you know, sometimes founders who have a relationship with an analyst, even from like a prior company, and they have some credibility there, you can use that when you're in a startup to build relationships and to start to get some analyst share of mouth or share of coverage, however, however you think about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think any one of those moments is a very fraught moment where you, you and the team are huddling strategically to think, what's the right way to play our cards here? <laughs> and, um, you know, is it, that we argue that we're really not in this market and we're in a slightly different market. You know, you're never going to go to them and say, if you really are a vendor in this category and customers really are asking the analyst firm about you, you're not getting out of that category. So you might as well figure out a way to make it more advantageous for you. I'll give an example of this. This is not, um, not one of the major analyst firms. It was actually one of the social review sites, but they similarly define categories. And that definition can make a big difference in how you're covered, where you fit, who else is there, that kind of thing. And so um, we had a competitor who was in our space, but they were also in a different space with a much higher volume of respondents. And um, they were using all of the reviews for that competitor of that other go-to-market that really had nothing to do with our category, but it, they were counting for them. And so we went to the firm and we said, look, here's how Forrester defines this market. Here's how Gartner defines this market. Like this set of this vendor's reviews really shouldn't be here. They belong in a totally different category. And we were successful in making the argument that that stuff should be somewhere else, which directly moved, moved our dot, moved their placement as well. And actually, I mean, I would argue, I would definitely argue, better represented the category to the market. And ultimately that's what the, the firms are trying to do. So, you know, if, you, if you're in that market and your website is talking about that product and customers are asking that analyst, does this company do this? And what do you think of them? You're not getting out of that wave or that MQ. So, um, you know, then you better have a strategy for how you're going to explain how you're going to do the best that you possibly can because opting out will not save you in, in that situation. If, you, if you're really in the market, they're going to cover it. Interesting. This, this is all great stuff. How can like early and growth stage companies work with analyst relations companies, right? Because I know some of this is you know very enterprise driven and some of this might be aspirational, but like what are paths to like strike up the relationship, build a business relationship yeah. to, you know, to get on the right path? That, right. I mean, if you, sometimes you have a relationship with an analyst from a past, you know, past life, past company, you're starting something adjacent, you want to keep those relationships up, right? So founders who have those kinds of relationships with analysts, I help them cultivate them, keep them, you know, have calls with those folks, but you're relying on your friendship and your value in the market more than your relationship, I would say, rather than your paid seat license in those cases. You can, as, as a startup, do briefings with analysts. So you do not have to have a Forrester or a Gartner seat license to brief them and to share information about your company and your momentum and your product and whatever. That said, they have to accept them. And so part of the game is presenting a really good case to a very targeted set of analysts that you are a company that they need to be paying attention to. That can happen because of a prominent founder who they know or a background in it. Typically, what I recommend is that the moment to start doing that is, number one, once your ideal customer profile is crystal clear and showing traction in the market, right? Because if you think about what your goal is in a briefing like that, what you're trying to do is, is sort of implant the chip in that analyst's brain that when I hear X from a customer of mine, I should say that company Y might be a good fit for them. So I need to walk out of that briefing with the sentence, company Y is really great for customers that need X and Y and Z and have a tech stack, right? 
you also want to be able to, to, and this is the harder part for founders, and really it's true all the way up until <laughs> to the biggest enterprises, right? You also need to be able to confidently say who is not for you. And I think a lot of times we want to say, like, we're really for everybody, right? Anybody can buy. But now, you know, we serve every end of the market, every vertical, whatever. But if you don't have a clear sense of who you're not for in the market, who's going to choose your competitor because your competitor actually is a better fit, it's evidence that you're kind of coming in with marketing fluff and not with something real that has teeth that the analysts can use, right? Analysts are not, they could have read your website to know how you go to market. Like they need to understand what you're good at and what you're not because ultimately their job comes down to articulating the very real differences in ways that like matter to the company they're consulting with or to the market. And so you want to be really confident in who you are and who you are not. And then the third thing that you need is evidence of solid re revenue, right? And, and strong reference customers are a really critical part of that, almost more important than the number itself. Ideally replacements, right? Because if this analyst is writing for your buyer and you are starting to say, hey, like this other company that you're covering, we had six customers move to us from them this year. And so you really need to be paying attention to us like that. Those are the kinds of data points that lead to analysts, you know, kind of leaning forward in their seat and saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm listening. Right. Part of the goal here, in addition to implanting the chip of when to recommend us, is you're positioning yourself as a resource. Right. So you're saying to this analyst, like this is a two way street. You're briefing an analyst to provide them with information that helps them do their jobs better and helps them be more credible in the market and helps them really be on the forefront of where technology is going. So once you start to really have market based data that your approach is, is working, that it's got traction, that it's where things are going, analysts should want to meet with you at that point. And so that's the moment to start to reach out. Now, I would not recommend that you reach out to 100 analysts with that pitch, right? Analyst relations, and this is a mistake I see companies make sometimes, especially startups, because they, they might hire like a PR firm and just like do analyst relations as a part of the PR program. For me, it's the opposite, right? PR is about spreading wide and getting word of mouth and getting coverage kind of in any way that you can. Analyst relations is about identifying like two to five people who are re have a really outsized impact on your space and influencing those people to think about the space the way you do. And so if you think about the techniques it would take to do that, they're very different than, than what you would do in public relations. And then one other thing I'll add here that you don't have to have a, a seat license for and that I have found very valuable is a lot of the firms will co-create content with you. So if you see... Um, Sometimes you'll see like surveys of a market that are sponsored by Gartner or IDC. Total economic impact reports fall into this category, right? If you actually work with an analyst firm to talk to your customers, quantify the impact that you've had for them, write something up. And those have those are powerful in a number of ways, right? Number one, they're incredibly high conversion pieces of content. You get a lot of interest in them because they're new research on the market and it's high converting, very interesting content that works in a bunch of parts of the funnel. You also get the opportunity to educate the firm, though. And so, you know, particularly if you're doing something like a um, like an economic impact report, you're potentially exposing an analyst to a bunch of happy reference customers who've gotten great results from working with your product. And so not only are you going to get that beautiful piece of content that has a, you know, a, a big name on it that your customers hopefully trust, but you're also directly influencing that person who maybe over the long term will be thinking about whether you should be in a wave or a magic water. And look, I'm not saying that you can do it again. This is not pay to play. So you can't like do a report like that. And that gets you into the wave, right? There's criteria. There are black and white lines like these analysts really want to be seen as as credible and dispassionate. And they work really hard to maintain that. But 
again, you're, you're adding value to them when you introduce them to reference customers and help them understand how people are getting ROI. So that's exactly the give and get that makes these relationships rich and useful for both sides. And a follow on to that is, you know, given certain enterprise buyer risk aversion and the role these analysts play with their true customer bases, these companies, is are there any lines in terms of size of a vendor, in terms of revenue, funding, employee headcount before you're too small, just realistically, where like Gartner's like, however cool of a vendor you are, <laughs> we're in a hard position to recommend you at this yeah, I think well, so there, there's a couple things that kind of came up in that answer. One of which is like, is there a hard line, not across categories, right? So the hard line in MarTech is different than the hard line in, you know, I don't know, ERP software, yeah. right? So yeah. like all of that is going to be very specific to whatever category you're in. And it will be well-defined um, the way these work. they The analysts put out first, like, kind of a landscape piece that's not evaluative and everybody sort of says, here's our size and whatever. And then they pick the top vendors from that. So unless you're a top vendor, once everybody reports, you know, that's really the line to get into a wave or a magic quadrant or something along that line. But there was also a question in there about kind of stability and likelihood to recommend that I want to, that I want to highlight, because I think it's, it's especially important right now when you're seeing a lot of companies in an interesting financial position, right? Where they maybe haven't been profitable in the past. Maybe they're getting taken private. I lived, I lived all the different phases of public, private venture, private equity in my time at Medallia. I'm seeing analysts looking much more at kind of financial stability right now. Does that, you know, particularly again, we're back to enterprise, but like if I'm going to recommend a company for the next eight, you know, I'm going to write something that piece is going to live for 12 or 18 or 24 months as, as something of record. I definitely don't want to pick a leader who doesn't exist at the end of that 24 months. And so one of the things I'm going to look at is, is this company, you know, making money? Is their funding stable? Like, do, am I seeing them invest in product roadmap and those kinds of things? And so all of that financial stability does play into wave and magic quadrant placements. You're unlikely to get a leader category unless you can show you know, we are likely, and, and that's the way I would think about it. Like we're likely, this company feels to the analysts like it is likely to still exist two years from now and still be influential two years from now. But if you can cross that bar, I think that's probably enough. And to jump back a bit in it, for an early or mid-stage company, and you talk about kind of the two-way street information flow, like what are some specifics like a founder or someone at an earlier stage company can share with an analyst that helps that analyst in their day-to-day -day job? One of the biggest things is like customer stories around ROI, right? If you think about these firms, they are, yes, they might cover the technologies, but very often they're writing a lot of content about best practices, right? Like Medallia sold customer experience software, but there were five or six analysts talking about how should I think about customer experience? What questions should I ask? What are the right workflows? You know, all of that stuff that surrounds the technology. And so sharing, especially customers who are willing to get on the phone with that analyst and share what they've experienced, how they've set things up. Um, I've found that analysts are always, they do um, conferences, right? Whether it's Forrester or Gartner's conferences or third-party conferences, they need stuff to talk about. And customers who are willing to share what they've done in the space are always, uh, you know, of prime interest because those analysts can then use that data. And often, not uncommonly, you can get an analyst and one of your customers together presenting at a conference, right? If your customer's got a strong enough story, and again, it's leading edge enough that other people would want to learn from that person at a Gartner or a Forrester conference, making those introductions and getting, um, 
you know, getting that analyst to have a relationship with your customer who's doing some really innovative, cool stuff that they might want to highlight together. It's like an everybody wins kind of thing. That's awesome and a great answer. I'm going to jump into some stuff we got from the Product Marketing Alliance, which is a great community. And we had a lot of interest uh, in this cast from them. And one of the first questions was, how to gain buy-in for an analyst relations program? Yeah, I love this question. I think this is question number one. And too often it's question number 50 or question number like, I'm trying to defend my program. The challenge I often see is that companies measure these programs impact in meetings, right? We met with 50 analysts, you know, every quarter. And so it's a good program. Like the way I always ran these programs, the point is to sell more software, right? So that means that either our program is creating good content, waves, MQs, thought leadership that we've influenced, like things like that, that we can license and we can use for lead generation, or we're winning waves and MQs and that's helping us kind of later funnel knockout competition because we're, you know, we, we've gotten our customer to tell procurement they have to go with a leader, right? So it's, it's all of those kinds of things. And then I want to see evidence of in my win-loss surveys, for example, after, you know, at the end of a sales cycle, I want to see evidence that analysts are having some kind of an impact there. So we got a question added to our win-loss survey just about who's influencing this. You know, who did you talk to? Did you talk to Forrester or Gartner or anybody else? to help you drive this decision? What content did you turn to? Um, Because that would very often give us a sense of influenced, you know, closed one, uh, closed one deals. And we could go back then to the executive team and say, look, like here are all the times when a customer who bought from us told us that part of the reason was that an analyst had influenced it. So, you know, I guess like the big takeaway there is you're not going to get buy-in from a meeting focused program. You're going to get buy-in from a program that is focused on how are we moving more, typically more revenue into this company. And that's going to usually come through getting analysts to recommend you, getting analysts to cover you well. Um, I've gotten leads from analysts in the past. I mean, this idea of implanting the chip that says Medallia is great for a company that looks like X, you can really do that. (laughs) I've gotten real, you know, I've gotten emails from analysts saying, hey, I was just talking to a customer and really feels like you guys should talk. Can you get them with a salesperson? Um, That is the hottest of hot leads when when you have something like that come in and it really is realistic. So don't treat it like PR, treat it like AR. Know who the five to 10 people you're really directly trying to influence are, and then have really clear goals for what is it we're trying to teach them. Are we trying to get them to recommend us? Are we trying to get a customer engaged with them? The one other caveat to that, and I, you know, I think this goes with the we're trying to influence 100 analysts mindset. Sometimes those kinds of programs use executive time very poorly, right? If I'm trying to brief 100 analysts a year, because uh, that's my program metric, then I need the CEO, the CPO, the chief strategy officer, the CMO to like all take their time to do that. I'm never going to be able to justify the use of those folks' time for those types of meetings. So, um, you know, be be cautious about how much executive time you're needing and be really thoughtful about what are the elements of this program that can actually move the needle from a business perspective. It almost always ties to some piece of content that sales is going to use. Or, you know, and it it can, there's a whole other side to analyst relations around getting insights from analysts that can drive your product roadmap. I don't mean to completely dismiss those things. They're just incredibly hard to quantify, right? Like, and honestly, I, I still think about them in terms of three years from now, when we built that thing that the analyst told us we should build, that's going to help our coverage because we're aligned with the market and the way they see it. So for me, the point of analyst relations, the reason you're engaging in all of this is to sell more software. And if you, you got to have a program metric that ties to selling more software. And that 
thinking in terms of timelines, like if you start an analyst relations program, like when does it start to bear fruit? These are long games, right? And that, and that's part of the challenge with getting the, the buy-in too, you know, but you can find low hanging fruit, you know, again, add a question to your win-loss survey, because my guess would be there are more analyst influence cycles than you know about. Customers don't always proactively tell the sales team that they've been influenced by Forrester or Gartner, but they are savvy AR practitioners um, and sales teams can start to see analyst influence in the RFPs that they're getting from customers as well. So you can start to see, you know, I, we were at a point where an RFP could come in, I could look at it and see, oh, they're working with Forrester because they're asking this question and this question and this question. And so, you know, I think analyst relations folks for some reason, like really have trouble getting close to sales teams, even though their content and what they produce is so critical for sales. So, um, you know, I think you've got to, you got to have your pull, your your finger on the pulse of what sales needs, and and be delivering that through the analyst relationships. Yeah, that's that's what I would say to that. And then, do you have any commentary on? And this is again from Product Marketing Alliance. So thank you. Between the largest firms and spending time with the niche firms, the niche firms can be incredibly influential too. But again, I, you know, for me, what I always go back to is what am I trying to do with my program? And we've said what I'm trying to do is sell more software. So then the question I have to ask myself is: Is this analyst influential with my buyers? Are they writing in a place and in a manner that my buyers are likely to read it, that they're likely to internalize it, that they trust it? And if you can get to yes with an analyst, you should add then that analyst belongs in your list, no matter where they work. There are lots of very influential analysts who are not at Forrester or Gardner or IDC or the big firms. You just have to find them. But just because an analyst has written something on Twitter about your space Broadly does not mean they are an analyst who your buyer is looking to. And so you're really looking for strong evidence that this is it. You know, and again, this is a great place to get data from that win-loss survey because you're going to ask, who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Who are you looking at? And so you can start to get data that suggests, oh, there's this person that, you know, that, that people really seem to trust. They read their blogs. Like we want to make sure that we're influencing that person as well. And in that case, it makes a ton of sense. There are other reasons to do it. But they're more PR reasons than they are, in my opinion, AR reasons. Is there any concept of like building blocks, right? That let's say a niche or a specialist ranks you in the leadership quadrant, that that in some way in itself is helpful for Gartner or Forrester in the future? It can be. Um, you know, I, I think um, I would be hesitant to ever go to Gartner or Forrester and say, you missed something. This other, you know, they, they kind of they have chips on their shoulders about being Gartner and Forrester. You got to be subtle about it. But could you use the fact that you've been covered in some someone else's evaluation to sell more stuff? You know, because it's useful in a sales cycle, right? You know, you can put that graphic up. You can talk about why you why you placed that way, why you got the coverage that you did. And does that influence in the market and real momentum start to influence Forrester and Gartner? That can certainly happen. Awesome, awesome. Well, look, we've gotten like a wealth of information and. I think people are probably impressed by you and they might want to know how to work with you. So could you tell everyone about what you're up to now? Yeah, that's awesome. So um, since I left Medallia, I, uh, I took a good long break and spent a lot of time hanging out with my kid. And then I got started to get a little itchy and miss this game a little bit. And so um, I founded an analyst relations consulting firm. It's called Upright AR. So up and to the right, very easy to remember. And um, kind of two sets of customers who are finding me. 
One is the folks who are already in a more established category. They're uh, maybe coming into a wave or a magic quadrant. They don't like how they placed the last time and they want to optimize a little better how they show up this time, or particularly folks who are coming into their first major evaluation and they really want a structured way to approach, help those companies figure out how to you know, really show well. And then the second category is smaller companies that um, they want to build toward that. And maybe they have a strong product marketer who hasn't really done analyst relations before. And so they want to make sure they're putting these things in place to make the right investments over the next 12 or 18 or 24 months or three years or however long it takes, but they don't want to hire somebody full-time to do that. So I do fractional analyst relations, work with those product marketers to make sure they've got the right plan, that the team knows how to execute. Sometimes I'll get with the teams and help them build like a really killer killer briefing deck so that they, they show up well and the team is kind of equipped to do that. So um, you can find me at uprightar.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you do have more AR questions, I would uh, I'd love to engage with folks who are listening. Awesome. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes and some of your recent blog posts, which again, like the, the universe of SaaS this is a very undercovered topic. And I appreciate all the insights and how deep uh, we got here today. And thank you for joining. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.